1983, communication was all the buzz. Cellular phones not only are becoming less expensive, they're getting smaller. One piece, handheld, not car phones, street phones. The Motorola Dynatac, the world's first foray into mobile contact, was close to being released. It resembled some kind of ugly slab of clunky buttons, took 10 hours to charge, lasted a mere 30 minutes, and cost approximately $9,500 to purchase in today's money. Those who think getting a car phone is not for them, whatever the reason, haven't kept up with the booming industry of cellular radio telephones. Things like this are becoming commonplace in U.S. cities where cellular is available today. This revolution in communications could make it possible for more and more people to have a phone in their car, or even one that travels with you. Like this unique cellular portable made by Motorola, which weighs only 30 ounces. Right now, businessmen and women are major users of radio telephones where cellular is in service. But more people will take advantage of cellular as its benefits become apparent. Dialogue was on everybody's radar, and the ways within which people could send messages, alert their friends to Phil Collins' latest track, for example, or pass on their birthday regards, was changing in an exciting and rapid way. 1983 was also the year we discovered that we weren't the only ones talking, nor were we the only ones listening. So were leafy hedges, sugar maples, and willow trees. Instead of notifying their neighbouring trees of whatever the cultural craze, though, plants were transmitting warnings. Can plants talk to each other? It certainly doesn't seem that way. Plants don't have complex sensory or nervous systems like animals do, and they look pretty passive, basking in the sun and responding instinctively to inputs like light and water. But odd as it sounds, plants can communicate with each other. Just like animals, plants produce all kinds of chemical signals in response to their environments. Healthy, undamaged trees able to witness the vicious infestation of bugs in a nearby root system suddenly started oozing a kind of airborne chemical that repelled insects. Aware of the plight of trees nearby, it was clear that plants could listen, that trees without brains or intellect could communicate, and really, really well. What does it mean to have a rich sensory world? You want to see the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed? That was delicious. Thank you so much. Hello, my name is Maria, and I'm here to tell you about ASMR. And more importantly, what does this mean for plants? For us, being able to see, hear, feel, smell, and taste means being able to survive as well as being able to ensure that others of our same type and species can too. We can sufficiently warn our peers of threats, establish bonds and alliances by way of laughter and intimacy, and initiate reproduction and connection. As much as communication has changed significantly over time, our want and capacity to liaise with one another has always remained present. It is one thing for a bee to hover toward a random collection of flowers, sure.
But if the gentle vibrations of their wings could be heard by any given blossom, only then for the flower to consciously multiply the amount of sugar present in its nectar, an otherwise innocuous act of nature seems much more calculated. The cupping shape of the flowers themselves emulate ears, designed to trap the slight resonance of bees' wings while able to block out irrelevant sounds, like the scrunching of nearby leaves or a particularly loud breeze. This is All Things Green, a conversation series brought to you by the Plant Society that shines a light on the people, places and politics behind the plants. I'm Madison Griffiths and every fortnight we will explore our cultural relationship to the plants we know, love and care for. When we start looking inward and making sense of our own sensory worlds, our sheer power to taste, smell, hear, touch and see only tells half the story. The other half is that we individually gravitate towards certain sensory experiences. And by that I mean we have preferences. I may love the smell of freshly mown grass and hate the taste of coriander or find certain styles of dress or art hard to look at. I may prefer a scorching hot shower as opposed to something more lukewarm or I may want to douse my luxa in chilli oil because I prefer my broth particularly spicy. Plants, like us, do more than just survive. They have natural biases they lean towards. There are places they like, sounds they respond better to, music that works and music that just doesn't. Research at the University of Western Australia found that plants do more than just tap into what is required for their survival. There are things they scoff at, noises they edge away from, and preferences for sounds they have. If anybody knows the validity of plant discourse and communication, it's Emily Parsons Lord, a Sydney-based cross-disciplinary contemporary artist who creates natural work that fits somewhere between the fringes of science and politics. We had a chat with her about the way plants quite literally spread messages to one another and how this can teach us a lot about ourselves. Um, my name is Emily Parsons Lord. I'm an artist. Um, I normally work with ephemeral materials like air and explosions and mist things like that. Well, I was thinking mostly about um, the future and the future of the environment, um, which is, of course, a very <laughs> complicated topic to approach. Uh, and I was working with weeds, actually. Oh, yes, of course. I was working with weeds, thinking that weeds are so often the first um, regenerators of um, traumatized landscapes. And I was considering weeds as... Um, these sorts of um, accidental self-portraits of humanity because they're so often uh, evolved alongside humans trying to remove them or to kill them. And so there were all these stories coming up about weeds growing alongside Monsanto crops and becoming kind of super weeds that were resistant oh to pesticides <laughs> and things like that. And I got really kind of um, stuck on that idea about these sorts of human-made monsters, plant monsters. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, sort of trying to flesh out the world of like what what kind of future would this look like? Um, and I thought, well, what will the soil and the water and the air look like? And I got really stuck on the air because when you start looking at air, um, 
you notice that it's changed dramatically over the history of life on Earth. Mm. And it sort of tumbles around in the cycle of um, life influencing the air and then air influencing how life can then evolve. It's not something Um, we often think about, is it? Like we sort of take air for granted as this constant. And it's so familiar. So when you start like putting it under the kind of magnifying glass, you can see it, it just suddenly becomes really interesting and really alien and unexpected and unfamiliar. We grew I grew up um, in lots of little rural and remote towns around Australia, but we moved all the time. Mm. Um, actually, I was chatting with my friend about this and that kind of um, movement between places um, gives you a really interesting kind of origin story as a young person. It's, yeah. it's very unanchored and very aerial and that kind of like um, floating between places kind of, I feel like it's lifted my head up into the clouds mm. rather than being kind of really planted in the ground. That's really um, true. Yeah, that, I guess that does sort of dictate your relationship with air in many ways. Yeah, and the the kind of big, um, the feeling that comes with thinking about air. So it's like, um, yeah, being, but I I love it so much because it's sort of simultaneously like the scale of the planet, but it's also the scale of your breath and the scale of, you know, atoms. So it's like simultaneously all these things at once. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe I maybe my upbringing of like moving around so often really kind of influenced um, my comfort or my interest in that sort of space. Yeah, wow. Like, and I yes, imagine like you know, in this episode we're talking a lot about communication and and how it has changed over time and what sort of advice should we take from plants when it comes to how they communicate with one another and and how we then communicate with one another, especially in this cultural climate that is so you know, environmentally fraught? It's an interesting question. I mean, partly my interest in plant communication is the human relationship with plant communication, which sort of started with, um, I don't know, like it goes back so far. Like even Aristotle was like, oh, there's nothing interesting here. Plants are sessile and they're stupid and and they're very low down on the hierarchy of life forms. Mm. Um and then it's like people just took that as red, as in like there's nothing more interesting here. But it's just this, this blind spot or these blinkers has meant that the sort of um, research and the interest in how plants communicate has been delayed so much and, and um, kind of not taken seriously for a really long time because there were all those studies that were like, these plants grew up to the sound of heavy metal. Yeah. And these plants <laughs> grew up to the sound of Beethoven. Yeah. thriving. <laughs> There's all these sort of moralizing kind of cloaks put over the idea of plant communication. But it's so rich and so varied. Um, and uh, there are so many different ways to approach it. And it's so sophisticated, too, where like one plant might be eaten by a certain bug so it emits a, a, a fragrance that attracts the birds that eats the bugs yeah. but that's, you know it, it, you get this sense that these plants have evolved to communicate in such a rich um ecosystem which of course they have and um you know even when we start looking at plant communication humans sort of take them out of an ecosystem and put them in a laboratory and and start doing strange things to them that's so true um, it's a lot more collaborative <laughs> than we take for granted like it's not at all insular it's like you're saying about you know that it plant communication considers its 
context. It's like it's yeah. it's physical context in ways that like I feel like with human communication we've tried really hard to isolate it and to make it very private and um, accessible without necessarily seeing how we I guess engage with our surroundings really. Yes, it becomes, I think, human communication, if we're sort of starting in 1983 um, and, and, and thinking about radio and digital technology, the, um, the advances in human communication have become more and more abstract and more virtual. So mm. instead of standing in a room chatting to you, you can see me and you can see me in my context, suddenly where, and this is where I get really excited about air as well. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I love like it. This, this <laughs> Communication means um, if we use radio waves, it's bouncing off the ionosphere. Like there's this kind of beautiful like shield within the air and it, it bounces off that and comes down elsewhere. So we can collapse the distance between us and as well as have this really high fidelity kind of sound. So, you, you know, like you have to have this sort of abstract idea about this person and you start filling in those blanks and it becomes a bit more virtual and so that kind of like being ripped out of context or being being um flattened maybe is kind of uh, goes hand in hand with the sort of development of technology and technical communication between humans it's really hard to talk about this stuff without acknowledging the climate emergency that we're that we're sitting in right now and it almost feels a little bit naff to or insensitive to talk about plants without and talk about even the air without thinking about even you know you being in Sydney right now and the and the air that's sort of you know um so outrageous to be in Sydney in this moment, um, being surrounded by these bushfires because you're breathing it, you're breathing <laughs> the smoke of plant of the plants burning in the mountains it, yeah. it's so palpable like and it's changing the color of the light which changes like how life looks how nature how how our reality looks like it's it's altering everything wow. um, yeah and then getting into our bloodstreams and <laughs> yeah. making everyone have headaches and feel sick it's so urgent and so immediate that I, I think it's the perfect time to start thinking about plants and their role in keeping us alive there's something emily said that i felt was worth reiterating There's a sense of familiarity when it comes to plants, and with familiarity comes disinterest over time. The plants we know and love become part and parcel. They come from the same world as the grass we picked at while we sat cross-legged at recess in our school uniform once upon a time, as children who dismantled weeds and stems without thought. The greenery we take for granted is the greenery that is burning and changing and communicating with the air, the animals and the life around it. And there you have it. Thank you for listening to the second episode of All Things Green, a conversation series brought to you by the Plant Society that shines a light on the people, places and politics behind the plants. I'm Madison Griffiths and you'll get to know me and my team pretty soon because every fortnight we will be exploring our cultural relationship to the plants we know, love and care for. 
I'd like to thank the rest of my wonderful team in-house, interstate and in-print. We're a pretty easygoing bunch, so make sure to drop in and say hello. And if you have any suggestions or topics or queries that you'd like us to tackle in all things green, drop us a line on our socials. Oh, and thanks also to Emily Parsons-Lord for her enthusiasm with being involved in this project and for the way she brings plant consciousness into the art world. See you next time.